You're listening to Freedom Christian Fellowship's podcast. I was reminded of something this morning in worship. And I just want to encourage you with a couple of things that I think can, can change your life, can just begin to take um, this time that we share together and take it to another level, is that if you will come in early to church, if you'll come in, not at 1030, but at 1015, say, well, pastor, how is that going to change my life? Because you're going to get a cup of just wonderfully brewed coffee, and coffee has the power to change your life. And you'll just meet some folks. But then the second one is even more important. That if you'll spend Saturday and Friday, and man, if you're bold Thursday, and if you're crazy Wednesday, I mean, if you're just like out of your mind Tuesday, Monday even, I dare. And if some of you are so extreme, you're going to start Sunday after church. Setting your expectation on what God can do here. It's going to transform the way this looks. Because as long as heaven and hell are realities... We are in the business of freedom. As long as heaven and hell are realities, there are people that we know that we love, and maybe even you find yourself here today that you don't know the love of Jesus. As long as those two things are realities, we are in the business of seeing people find and know the freedom that only Jesus Christ can give. And that's what we have to set our hearts to every week. Why? Because God loves the lost. All right. God loves the lost. This morning, we're going to continue in our series that we started on prayer. Last week, we started a series on prayer. And this is just a two-week series. I know it's amazing, huh? It's just so great how that works. But last week, we talked about what prayer is and the purpose of prayer, uh, even from what the Bible says. And Jesus said some really important things about prayer. Scripture tells us that he came up on a scene where during Passover, where they were having some exchanging of money so that people could buy animals to sacrifice for the Passover. And Jesus saw it, and he was filled with rage. And this is one of the few examples during Jesus' ministry where he acts almost out of character, where he goes and he moves from this peaceful or this profound Jesus into this almost, dare we say, angry Jesus. And he goes and he flips over the money tables that were being exchanged. And in all fairness, listen, I know that what we think immediately is how dare they be selling stuff in church. Uh Uh-uh, that is not what church is about. But what they were doing was actually not something that was was foreign. They weren't doing something that was even necessarily wrong. What they were doing is giving these people an opportunity to exchange their money. So as they came from hundreds and hundreds of miles away and they couldn't carry their sacrificial animal with them, that they could just take the money, exchange it, and purchase what they needed to make the sacrifice. But when Jesus saw it, he wasn't responding because there were people selling junk in the church. What he was responding to is that this was about to soon be abolished. That the temple and the sacrifice were about to be abolished because the perfect sacrificial lamb, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, was going to move in and hang himself on a cross willingly And allow his blood to be shed so that this was no longer needed. So that when man said, I believe in the blood, the blood of Jesus, the blood of the perfect lamb, that they were only going to have to do it once and no more. And the temple wasn't going to be necessary because Jesus said, I'm going to build my temple in you. The Holy Spirit's going to live in you. So when Jesus flipped over those tables, what he said was this. My house has become a a den of robbers. 
They're robbing from the truth. They're robbing from the revelation of me by putting their faith in me. Then he goes and says something very powerful about what really this is about. When we come together, he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus believed in the power of prayer. He even taught his disciples, and he used the metaphor of a mountain. And he told the the disciples, said, listen, if you pray and you believe in me, that you put your agreement in me, you can look to this mountain metaphorically and tell it to be cast into the sea. What was Jesus talking about? The power of prayer. That when we come in his name, and through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus, believing in what he did, that God moves heaven and earth to begin to respond to our prayers. He hears our prayers. He moves mightily on, his prayers, on our prayers. But he also said this, that when we come into agreement, into the unity together, there's something even more amazing that happens as a body of believers prays in agreement to Jesus that real transformation can happen. And Jesus loved prayer. He valued prayer. He taught us that prayer was powerful. And even though prayer is powerful, we we learn that it's just really honestly an authentic communication between us and God. That it's supposed to unfold layers of intimacy as we allow God to love us and we love God in return. It's just really communication, much like our relationships on, on on the earth, whether they be marriage or with our children or any kind of relationship. And we looked at the model of prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that we probably all know by heart. I just kind of pulled out three simple truths from that prayer. And I'm not saying that's all that is in the Lord's Prayer. By no means are there just simply three simple truths. There's so much to learn. But this is what we talked about last week. Is that when we pray, we need to have margin. We need to have perspective. And we need to have a time of application. Why is margin so important? Because even though a lot of times when we come in to pray... We come in with a list of needs and concerns and cares, and that's good. We're supposed to give those to the Lord. The first thing that has to happen is there has to be a time for God to love us and us to love God without an agenda, without a plan, but for us just to receive. Why? Because it sets the tone. It does the second thing. It corrects the perspective. We stop coming in as beggars or as whiplash dogs or as whip dogs or, or people that are dejected, but we begin to enter into the way God sees us as sons and daughters through the revelation of His love. And then what happens is this, is God actually asks us to give Him that list of cares and concerns that are weighty upon our life. You know why? Because He cares for us, but He doesn't want us to come through the perspective of those weighty things. He wants us to come through the perspective of a son or a daughter. And he says, listen, I'll meet those things. But the third thing is the application, the activation, where the Holy Spirit does His work, where He takes and He gives us power to accomplish the things God's called us to do, even when it comes to tackling some of those difficult things in your life. He gives us the power to do that. He gives us the wisdom and the courage to do that. And that's what prayer is. But this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at lifestyle prayer. Lifestyle prayer. And what we're going to look at first is this uh, amazing verse we referenced last week in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. It says this, kind of crazy. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you've ever wanted to know God's will for you, Here you go. If you're looking for God's will, this is can be your step one. Here it is again. 
Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. God lays out a plan and a desire for us, and I want to pay attention to that second thing. Pray continually. The New Living Translation says it like this. Never stop praying. Never stop praying. Wait a minute. That seems really, really impossible for us to never stop praying. Well, I've got good news for you. This is not literally what it means, that, that every second of your day should be filled up with prayer. But what it literally means is this, is to pray first, to pray first, that the first thing out of our lives should be to pray, to pray, to not give up, but to pray. When situations hit us, pray first. When we put prayer first in our life, it has the power to do amazing things. Jesus said like this in Luke 18, and he taught the disciples on prayer using a parable. In Luke 18, 1, he said this, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And he began to tell them a parable about a widow woman who was being treated unkindly by her adversaries. And she went to a judge. The only problem is that this judge was an unjust judge. The Bible says two things. He did not care about people and he did not care about God. That's a bad judge. See, all these problems didn't just start happening in the last few years in America. They've been around for a long time, right? A bad judge. But here's what this widow woman did. She didn't go and and complain. She didn't tweet out, I cannot stand judge so-and-so. She didn't, she didn't go and say, just put her hands in her, on, her, on, her, on her face and her, her, her head between her legs and just go, oh, woe is me. I can't, I can't do this. What she did is she kept going to this judge. Every day she would show up. She would be that annoying person that would be right there with her paperwork in her hand or in the front of the line in the judge's office and saying, judge, I want to talk to you. I've got a problem. And Jesus alludes to the truth that this went on for a long time until it got to the place where this wicked judge finally said, you know what, I'm kind of getting scared that she's going to come after me. So because I'm afraid, I'm going to tackle this woman's problems. I'm going to take care of her adversaries. I'm going to rule in her favor. But Jesus uses this unique parable to teach us to pray and never give up. Because he turns this and says, listen, God, your father, is not like the unjust judge, but he does respond to prayer. He does respond when we bring prayer to him. And there's these things that God does, that he does when we pray. The first thing he does is that he hears the cries of his people. Jesus wanted us to know that when we're bringing these things to God, listen, and we're praying, and we're choosing to pray first, that God hears. God hears. And for some of you, that is just, that's, that's truth that is setting you free right now. Because in your heart, you're wondering, does God hear? And the answer is, God hears you. But God doesn't just hear you, He cares for you. Because He's the good Father. He is the good Father. And we're going to talk a little bit about this today when it comes to prayer and how we approach the Father. And it starts in the revelation of his goodness. You've got to believe, if you are going to go to prayer, that God is a good father. I'm going to show you that in scripture, because some of you have been hindered by your perspective of your earthly father, and it's keeping you from developing a prayer life that you need 
to be everything that Jesus has called you to be. But Jesus uses his parable and says, listen, he hears you. He is a good father. He cares. And then finally, he moves in behalf. He is going to move. He is going to move. Don't give up praying. I like what Smith, Smith Wigglesworth, a, a, a famous revivalist, years and years ago said. If you don't know about Smith Wigglesworth, you need to, you need to go ahead and, and Google him because he's a great, powerful, powerful and really unorthodox healing ministry that God used him to, to, to spread on the earth during his life. But he says this, I never pray more than 20 minutes, but I never go more than 20 minutes without praying. I love that. I love that. Very simple. Very true. Listen, prayer isn't confined just to the schedule of our life, but we can work prayer in and pray first in every situation. So what I want to do today is just give you four simple keys to lifestyle prayer. Okay? And some of these are going to be very practical, but I want you to take them because if you will add them in to the practical aspects of your life, to the daily schedules of your life, you're going to see a very powerful, powerful change. All right? You guys ready? So the four keys to lifestyle prayer. Jesus sums it up like this, actually, and he describes lifestyle prayer in John 15, 4 and 5. And I want to I read this uh, with you guys this morning. It says, remain in me and I will remain in you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying here, remain in me and I will remain in you. He's giving out and, and putting out a promise here. And really what lifestyle prayer is, is remaining prayer. It's staying connected to the Father. And we do that by praying first. By bringing our life before God first. It says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. It makes simple. We all know that. We all understand that. If you cut a branch off of your rose tree or your, your peach tree or whatever tree you have, and, and you stick it in the ground, it's going to probably die. It's going to die. It doesn't It's been disconnected from the source of life. And Jesus is using this and allowing this to become a very powerful illustration in our heart. And saying, listen, you have to stay connected to me. Why? Because if you don't, you're not going to survive. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So Jesus is not just simply saying this. If you get disconnected from me, you're going to die. But he's actually bringing it up to a higher purpose. He's actually putting hope into our hearts. And he's bringing a goal back in front of this. And this is something that prayer unlocks, lifestyle prayer unlocks when we remain in him. Listen to this. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in, I in him, he will bear much fruit. What does lifestyle prayer produce? What does remaining prayer produce? Much fruit. What does that mean? When we choose to put prayer first, put God first in the areas of our life and go to him in prayer first, you know what happens to our marriages? They get better. God begins to do something supernatural in our life. You know what happens in our relationships with our kids? They get better. Anybody beside me running into some like dead ends with your children? Don't raise your hand. They might be in here. I'll raise mine. Last week, if you were here, you heard me front out my daughter, Abby, uh, with a text message, and you have to get the CD if you want to hear what happened, but I exposed her uh, in a loving way, and guess what? We had a little, we had a little tangle at home. 
And you know what? And it's funny. We joked about it, and she, she loved it, and it was, it was fun and good nature. But you know what? If we put God first and we put prayer first, then our relationships with our kids get better. Our relationships at work get better. Well, how, how can you say that? Because Jesus promises it. When we remain in him, when the revelation of, of the love of God remains in us, when the revelation of going to him in prayer remains in us, praying first, the Bible says that we'll bear much fruit. And then he says this. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, listen, you can go ahead and try it, and some of us have, but you're going to really realize pretty quickly that apart from me, you can do nothing. So lifestyle prayer really is remaining prayer. When we remain in him, we stay in the revelation of his love, and we pray first. The first key is this, is the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. We all have priorities and need priorities in our life to keep us in order. We have priorities, but the Bible gives a good example of priorities in our life and and tells us what happens when we decide to pray first. And it's very specific about first things. When we choose to pray first and make prayer the priority, the Bible says good things will begin to happen in our lives. The Bible talks about the importance of first in two ways. Is that the first thing is that it communicates value to those who you do the first thing for. So when you do something first for your children before you do something for yourself, it communicates value. For your spouse, it communicates value. And it also communicates value to God when we put Him first. We put Him first. But the most important thing about the first is that it has and it sets the precedence for the rest. The first thing sets the precedence for the rest. Let me say it like this, is that the first has the power to bless the rest. The first has the power to bless the rest. And so even in our lives, when we hit situations where we're beginning to slightly freak out, instead of choosing and choosing to dwell on those things and wrestle with those things, internalize those things, we need to pray first. And make prayer our priority. Why? Because we're opening up the door for God to begin to bless the rest of what's going on. Early church understood this. It's actually one of the reasons why we worship on Sunday. There's two reasons why we worship on Sunday. And then we moved the worship experience from Sabbath, Saturday to Sunday. The first reason is because most people believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected on a Sunday But the second reason why the early church moved it to Sunday is because they wanted to start their week with a worship experience honoring God because they believed it had the power to bless the rest of their week. See this principle true even there. I remember as a kid that there would be times I grew up in a a, a wonderful household that loved the Lord um, especially my mom. I joke, I joke about this, but my mom used to answer the phone. This isn't a joke. This is actually true. My mom used to answer the phone, praise the Lord. My friends would call, and they'd be greeted with praise the Lord. And my friends didn't know what to do. <laughs> Some of my friends would do the sign of the cross behind the phone, like, what, what's happening right here? I had one friend ask me if my mom was a nun. That friend's... <laughs> But one of the things that my, my parents instilled in me, and many of you resonate with this, is that uh, even when I would get sick as a kid, my, my parents would, would go and they would pray first. 
It's not that they didn't go get medicine, and I'm not telling you that. Please listen, understand what I'm saying to you. I'm not telling you to pray and not go to the doctor, but what I'm saying is that when you allow the priority to be prayer, you make prayer the priority, is you're inviting the presence of God in to come and to set the precedence for the rest. And I remember even as a child, and my parents would say, well, let's pray. We had a fever, well, let's pray. We'll go get the Tylenol, but let's pray. Let's invite God to heal you. Let's do this. What were they doing? They were setting the priority for prayer. Setting the priority for prayer. Sometimes we even get this confused even, and I, I don't want to harp on this, but even with the tithe. Listen, the tithe, that, and it's our act of celebration and worship here, but the tithe is not so much about the amount as it is the first, it being the first. See, because we're not trying to finance a church as much as we're communicating something to God. And sometimes I think in our mind we get that thinking backwards because what the tithe is supposed to say is God, you're first. It's supposed to be the first 10%. It's a principle that God set in motion. And this is what I want you to see is that as we make prayer the priority, as we make God the priority, he has the power to bless the rest. So where's the application in this? I want to read to you a passage in the book of Daniel because Daniel did this. We have to put prayer in the priority position of our life. In Daniel 6.10, Scripture says this, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. The, the decree from Nebuchadnezzar had been passed down. You're not going to bow down to any other gods. What does Daniel do? See, Daniel had a priority of prayer. Even though the decree had been passed down, he went to what he always did. He had an appointment with God, a priority of prayer with God three times a day, and he didn't change it even in light of the persecution that was heading his way. So here's the application for us with this first key of making prayer the priority is make an appointment with God and keep it. Make an appointment with God and keep it. Listen, some of you use your phones to make your schedules, the schedule in your time with God. Why? Because when you do that, you know it's going to happen and you're able to say and the things that may come and try to steal that time that's so important with God away from your life. Somebody calls and says, hey, you want to have coffee? No, no, I, I've got an appointment. You've got to tell them what you're, what you're doing. Say, no, I've got an appointment. I'm sorry, I can't do that right now. I just want to extend to you a seven-day challenge to do this, to make prayer a priority, to, to have an appointment, a time with God, and see what happens. Watch what happens when you make prayer your first priority. See what happens. I'm excited to see testimonies. If you commit to that and say, listen, I'm going to do that for seven days. I'm going to set a time, whatever time is good for you, that you know you're going to be able to share a little bit of time in prayer with God. Set that time and keep it and see what it does for your life. Key number two. Everybody all right? All right. The place of prayer. The place of prayer. I'm going to talk about this one very quickly. Jesus had a prayer place. He had a place of prayer. In Mark 1, 35, says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus liked to pray first thing. He had a priority of prayer, but he also had a place of prayer. Now, that's not me. 
When it's dark, my eyes are closed. And that's okay if that's you too. But Jesus had a place of prayer. And that word solitary place literally means it's a certain place. Jesus had a certain place. Some scholars believe that when Jesus was going right before the crucifixion to the Garden of Gethsemane, that that wasn't just the place he found, but that was his certain place of prayer. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would, he would walk among the trees and he would, he would see the, the beautiful things that his father had created, that he and his father had created, but it also had a, a beautiful view of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. And I could just imagine him using that special place, that special time that he had set aside, but that very important place where he knew he could commune with the Father. See, because he was human just like we were, even though he was totally divine, totally God. And it's a beautiful picture of having a very special place of prayer. Where is your place of prayer? Where is the place that you feel connected to God? Are you a walker when you pray? Do you like to walk around? I'm a walker when I pray. I find it very difficult to like be still. That's okay. If you feel connected to God, set a place of prayer. Maybe it's your garage. Maybe it's your shower. Maybe it's the the car ride on the way to work. Maybe it's your closet. Wherever it is, have a place where you meet in prayer with God that becomes special. Here's why. There's a phenomena that, that sociologists and scientists are seeing about this generation. It's called the third place. See, every person here has two places. You have a place, your home, where you have a level of comfort and a level of peace, but then you have your place away from home, whether it's work or school or whatever it is. And there's two places, but there's a new phenomenon growing amongst us, and it's called the third place, and that's your virtual place. That's your place online. That's your emails, your Facebook, your Twitter, the thing that you are connected to continually. Be on Facebook continually, (laughs) and you're scrolling through. The problem with it is that that third place is becoming all-consuming. It's becoming all-consuming in our life. And I know for some of you say, well, that's just not me. I don't don't have that place. Listen, I don't have a Facebook account, and I understand that. But it's a very real thing in today's society, in our life, of us disconnecting out of reality and allowing that virtual space to occupy all of our space. Especially in light of praying first and allowing the place of prayer to be created in our heart. And so the application for us in this, for some of us today, is before you go to your third place, go to the first place of prayer. Before you start your day off in your third place, before you go through, because if you're like most people, when you open up that third place, you can't get out of it. And it begins to occupy your mind even when you turn it off. And see, here's the thing, is that for some of you, and I'm not saying that third place is bad. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you that your social networks and Facebook and all that is bad. But it must be redeemed. It must be used for a purpose. A purpose that echoes who God created you to be and glorifies God. And the only way that's going to happen is when we have a place of prayer that's the first place, that's the priority. Number three. The plan of prayer. The plan of prayer. Anytime you go someplace meaningful, you have to have a plan. And the same thing applies in prayer. So have a plan when you go to pray. For some of you, that means a devotional or a list of names. 
I want to encourage every person here to have something that connects them in, that creates a bit of a plan, whether it's a worship, some worship music. I want to encourage everybody here that when you go to prayer and as you make prayer a priority, that you bring in there not just the list of concerns or your list of your family member, but also a list of people who you love who do not yet know Jesus. To bring that in with you in the place of prayer. So we make prayer a priority and we have a place of prayer. We have to have a plan. And we come in and, and I want to encourage you too to do this is to have a blank page. Why? Because what happens is this. Is that God's going to begin to birth God ideas in your heart and you're going to forget them. And so you need a place to write them down in prayer. See, this is the place that God speaks into us in the stillness and the quietness of who He is and He just begins to be, birth big, huge things inside of us. It happens in prayer. And you have to have a place, some resources. You have to have a plan in place to, to begin to, to write those things down, to bring those things in. See, Jesus was asked this question in Luke 11, 1 and 2. His disciples saw Him praying. He said, listen, John's disciples, John taught his disciples how to pray. Jesus, will you, will you teach us to pray? He teach us to pray. And that's when Jesus unfolded the Lord's Prayer. And he said, listen, this is, this is how you pray. And again, I want you to, if you missed last week, go back and get that and listen to that. Get a plan for prayer. I know it sounds so painfully simple. I understand that. It's okay. But when you go into prayer, because here's what I want to happen for us, is I don't want prayer to just be something we dread, but something we love. How would it be if our, if our attitude and our language changed about prayer and we delighted and we said, there's not enough hours in the day to pray? Some of you say, oh man, that sounds foreign to me. But that's what God designed prayer to be. And see, it all goes to this because the first three things are so important is that having a priority for prayer, setting that appointment is so important. Having the place of prayer, very important. Having a plan in prayer, but listen, all three of these things are useless without the most important key. The fourth key. The key I'm the most excited that can revolutionize your prayer life. It's the persons of prayer. The persons of prayer. And I want to spend a second and I want to talk to you about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And how they apply to our life when we pray. And as we pray, because they all have a distinct purpose when we pray. And as I mentioned earlier, this is, I believe, one of the things that, that God that has been attacked the most in our life through the perspective for some of us of our earthly fathers. But God wants to redeem it because until we understand who God is and we understand who Jesus is, and some of us say, well, Pastor, I know that, but I, I want to remind you again today through a very particular verse. And here's my hope, is that it begins to transform the way you come into prayer. That you come in with a great level of excitement. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul gives what's, a, what's called a benediction, which is a prayer. And here's what he prayed for the church in Corinth here. And I'm going to read from the message translation because it's beautiful language. He says, the amazing grace of the Master, Jesus Christ, the extravagant love of God, the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Listen to what Paul prays. Because he hits the Godhead here. 
Here's what he wants us to see. The amazing grace of the master Jesus, the extravagant love of God, and the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit. So as Paul prays for the church in Corinth, he prays this, I want you to know these three things that I know every time I come into prayer. So it's my privilege to introduce you to these wonderful truths. The first one, the amazing grace of Jesus. The amazing grace of Jesus. Jesus has a unique job when it comes to our prayer. Our time in prayer is that he carries our prayers to the Father. This is why we pray, and Jesus taught us to pray through the name of Jesus to the Father. Because he carries our prayers to the Father. He is the mediator. He is the mediator with the the total goal of getting us connected to God. When I was in the second grade, I received one of the craziest love notes of my life, yet to be matched. This girl liked me. Remember her first name? It was Amy. I don't remember her last name. She wrote me this note, and it said this, our eyes have met. Our lips not yet, but watch out, kid. I'll get you yet. What? That's heavy duty. Some of you guys are writing that down. Like, what you say? Hey, say that again, Pastor. Put that on the screen. Man, I'm telling you. Second grade slaying it. All right. But you know, she didn't deliver that note. There was a mediator. There was a mediator. If I could just paint this picture for you because this is Jesus' job and how does he do it? He does it in the amazing grace of the master. So his job is to mediate between us and the Father and he hears our cries. He hears our concerns. When we come to the Father and we say, God, I'm broken. God, I'm in this place. Jesus, I messed up. I did this. He doesn't go, oh, yep, 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 you did it. You blew it. He doesn't look at you and go, yeah, yeah, you messed up. I don't think there's anything we can do in this situation. What he does is he applies his amazing grace. And he goes to the Father and he says, Father, listen, here's Andy. And I need to connect him to you because he's broken right now. And here's why he's broken. He blew it. He messed up. He hurt somebody. He did something. He's depressed. He's feeling this. And he brings it to the Father. But he doesn't just lift it to the Father. He says, God, I understand what Andy walked through because I walked through it too. I understand the failure and the brokenness because I embrace that too. And as a great mediator in his amazing grace, he carries that and presents that to the Father. Listen to what Hebrews 5, 4, 15, and 16 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted. That word tempted literally means this, touched with feeling in every way. See, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And in his amazing grace, he sees and he loves. And he understands. And he goes as the mediator to the Father In every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us 
in our time of need. We approach through the name of Jesus because he's the mediator and because of his grace. When he takes our prayers before the Father, he takes it through his precious blood and he lifts it up. And through that grace, the Father responds. What's our role in this? You say, well, listen, how, how, do I, how do I approach this? How do I see this? Here's our role in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. This is the beautiful thing. You don't have to do anything except for humble your heart and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need you in my weakness. I need you in my pain. I need you in my shortcomings. I need a revelation of your grace right now. The second one is this. The extravagant love of the Father. The extravagant love of the Father. I've said this before, but it's probably the greatest lie of the enemy to get to destroy this perspective because some of us don't come in and don't see God as a loving Father. We see Him even in the best light as the great Oz, the one who just barks out commands behind a shroud. That we don't see and we don't feel connected to, that we don't understand, but it's the furthest thing from the truth and one of the greatest lies of the enemy. Because what we're met when we come through the grace of Jesus Christ is the extravagant love of the Father. Hmm. In Ephesians 3.14, again, Paul writes this as a prayer. And this is one of the, the few written out prayers that we see in the New Testament. He says this, for this reason I kneel before the Father. I kneel before the Father. Can I tell you what that means and how it applies to the extravagant love of, G- of God, the Father? Because it made perfect sense to the people he wrote this to. They understood it differently. It wasn't us coming down and kneeling and saying, we are so weak and pathetic. We are nothing compared to you, God. What it was was something that would be seen in that culture. Amongst the Hebrews. Because when you entered into your father's house, what you would do is this is that you would go and you would kneel down before your father. And what he would do is this, is take his hands and put them on the side of your face and pull your eyes up to his, to his to kiss you and to bless you. And this is what Paul writes. He says, it's for this reason that I kneel before the Father. Why? Because when I kneel before the Father, I have an encounter with his extravagant love. And this is what God wants. When we come into prayer, This is who he is and what he wants. He wants to put his hands on you and bless you. Can I tell you who the Father is? Can I tell you who he truly is? And and maybe for some of you, break some of the the wrong thinking that you've had in your life about who God is and what he's waiting to do. He's not waiting to thump you. He's not waiting to get you. He's not mad at you. You don't have to dress up or, or be different to approach him. This is who he is in Psalm 103. 8 through 13, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. I love that one. He's slow to anger and he is abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Do you hear that? Do you hear the extravagant love of the Father? 
He's not repaying Andy based upon what he deserves, but he's giving something so much better, something that can set me free, something that can put life and hope back into me. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The extravagant love of the Father. This is what God wants us to embrace in prayer. When we come through the amazing grace of the Son, Jesus, and we find that mediator, that one who is able and has a job of connecting us into the Father, bringing our requests before the Father, saying, I understand, and it's covered in my blood, Father. And God responds in his extravagant love and says, then I'm going to pour out what Andy needs. Not what he deserves, but what he needs. I'm going to pour out hope, and I'm going to pour out forgiveness, and I'm going to pour out healing. I'm going to pour out these things. This is how the Father wants you to approach him in prayer. And finally, the third person is what Paul writes as the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit. And for many here, this is the one that we probably feel the most disconnected to. But can I, can I tell you what the job of the Holy Spirit is in prayer? What his role is? Is this. Is when the prayer meeting is over, when prayer time is done, it doesn't stop there. Because the Holy Spirit goes with you. He goes with you. He continues to stay with you. And the, and the word literally in the Greek is the parakletos, and what that means is this, is the one who is called by your side to help you. See, Jesus in his grace and God in his extravagant love don't just leave us to these times set aside in prayer where we do them as just religious things that we do, but what they do is perfect and complete through the Holy Spirit because it carries with us This priority of prayer reminds us, reminds us of the truth of his love, reminds us of his amazing grace. It nudges us when we're about to head to the wrong direction. Some of you felt that before, that little, don't do that. That's the Holy Spirit. He gives us power. He reminds us of who we are. And when we pray, when we pray, he is active at work in us. John 14, 16 and 17 says this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. See, the whole goal of prayer is this, in making prayer a lifestyle, it's to intimately connect in with the Godhead. The tools that we use really just are are things that we use to help make this the first thing that we do, the top priority of our life. By making prayer a priority and having a place and a plan, listen, You make your own place. You make your own plan. I pray that you make it a priority in your life. I pray that you make it a part of your daily schedule. But what I want more than anything is you to connect into the persons of prayer, to know the amazing grace of Jesus and the extravagant love of the Father, and know that the Holy Spirit is with you in intimate friendship everywhere you go, empowering you to be everything God has called you to be. That's what I want. Because when that happens, prayer is unlocked in your life. When that happens, freedom is unlocked in your life. When that happens, 
The calling that God's called you to is unlocked in your life. Amen.